Anthony said, we're continuing in Mark. Uh, we're going to be looking at chapter 6, if you have your Bibles with you. We're going to look at a pretty um, ambitious chunk of text, verses 1 through 29. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to turn there. The text will also be up on the screen. So Mark 6, verses 1 through 29. And he, that is Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages, teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out, two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals, not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave, Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Let's pray. 
Almighty God, we are so grateful that you have given us your word. We thank you that your word is as it tells us, as you have taught us, it is living and it is active. It shapes us, it cuts away the fat and the unneeded superfluous areas of our lives. It builds us up in the strength that we find ultimately in Jesus Christ. We ask that you would move in us and among us in the power of your Holy Spirit now and in the power of your word to teach our minds and to teach our hearts that which you would have us to learn. Not what I would have myself to learn or my brothers and sisters to learn, Lord, but what you would have us to learn. I pray that you would um, look over my words and anything that I say that might not align with your will would be quickly forgotten. We thank you for these and all your blessings. In Christ's name, amen. This is, uh, as I said, a kind of ambitious chunk of text for us today. Um, and while these three sections might seem like they're kind of unrelated, you're not sure how to read through these little stories in a way that really makes sense. How do they fit together? Um, but one of the things that they do is that they show us uh, some of the types of things that were going on during Jesus' ministry. Uh, more specifically, they show us how different people are thinking about and responding to this question of who is this Jesus? Um, it's important to remember here that Jesus wasn't like traveling all over the world. He wasn't even traveling all over the Mediterranean world. He was working mostly in a really small geographic region. His disciples and others were going out maybe a little further, uh, but they weren't traveling far and wide, not really. Uh, so we look first at Jesus coming to his hometown, right? Nazareth. Um, you might read that and think his hometown, Bethlehem. No, that's where he was born. Nazareth is where he grew up. Backwoods, Nazareth, where his parents were told to go by an angel when they were returning from Egypt. So he grew up in this small town of Nazareth. It was less than one square mile in size, had probably fewer than 500 inhabitants, so, uh, you know, much, much smaller even than Black Mountain. You can imagine pretty easily everyone knew everyone else. And everyone knew everyone's business. Um, they didn't live in our digital age, clearly, where we could stay home and largely not have to pay attention to what other people are doing or not have people know what we're doing. People knew Jesus. That's my point. People knew Jesus. Clearly, they knew his family and if that were not enough, he had been performing these miracles now for a little while, as we've seen through the first five chapters, and word is getting out. Word is getting out whether people think that Jesus is, you know, some false prophet or they believe that he is, in fact, the Messiah of God. Word has gotten out. So there is no excuse for any of these people in Nazareth to not know who Jesus is. So he's, he's back home, right? He comes into his hometown. He's back visiting his family and friends as he's passing through maybe, um, staying for a few nights, and he begins teaching in the local synagogue as has become his habit. And the people are astonished at his wisdom, right? They're, uh, they're not saying, man, this guy's, this guy's full of it. What is he talking about? He's ridiculous. 
They're astonished at his teaching. They're amazed at his works. They're not saying, who's this lunatic pretending to heal people? They're saying, hey, I was, I was over there in that next town, and he healed a guy, uh, or he cast a demon, or my cousin saw him heal somebody else who was blind. They're not making things up. Uh, they're not uh, questioning the power or the authenticity of what he's doing. They're amazed. But then what do they do? Then they ask, how? How is he doing these things? Um, and we've, we've heard of what he's done, again, down the road. But it seems that they are not taking his teaching and his miraculous works that they're hearing about. They're not taking them to heart. They're questioning them. And this, you know, this machine-like question of how, yeah, but how, um, is not so unusual for us in our day, um, in our day of science and technology and AI and everything else is, how can we do this? Yeah, how can we take that next step? We don't quite so often like to or want to ask the question of why. Why should we do this? Why do we want to do this? They're asking a question of how is he doing this? And that's not a bad question. We'll see uh, many other people throughout the Gospels, Pharisees and scribes and other people ask this question, how is he doing it? By what power? Um, but they don't seem ready for the answer, do they? They're not ready to say, to hear, yeah, you know that Jesus that you know that you grew up next door to? He's actually God incarnate. So, uh, you know, maybe listen to him. Maybe he's not a fraud. They're just not ready to hear that. Uh, they're not willing to hear these kinds of answers because these kinds of answers will mess their lives up. Uh, rather than looking at the gloriousness of, of God incarnate being in, in my little village, being maybe someone that I grew up with or someone that my kids grew up with, rather than, than erupting in unbelievable thanksgiving, they're questioning. Mostly, they're questioning. They're not believing. John Calvin says that their ingratitude made them to cover themselves with darkness, that they are compelled to admire him, whether they will or not, and instead they treat him with con contempt. Some of these folks grew up in what we would call a worshiping community alongside Jesus. And yet, when confronted with who he really is, what are their hearts inclined to? Their hearts are inclined to take offense, to find some sort of offense in Jesus as the Son of God. We saw earlier in Mark, in chapter 1, verse 22, and we see other places in the gospel where the authority with which he's working is not really in question for a lot of people. They say, this guy is clearly sent from God. We see that the, the truth of his authority was clear to all of those people who were not still blinded by their own prejudices, who were not still blinded by the social or theological prejudices, by their political or prideful prejudices. The wealthy could not stand 
God, uh, Jesus's close association with the poor, the overly religious could not stand um, his authority or the answers to their questions that they couldn't seem to poke holes in. And there was some concern there among those religious too that what if this guy isn't the real Messiah? Like we've seen some false messiahs before. What if he's, what if he's not the real one? That's going to that's gonna be a problem. We see those in power largely dismiss Jesus as an annoyance. He's riling up these Jews that live in my territory, and I just kind of want them to all be quiet and leave me alone. But to those who saw his authority for what it was, the question was not so much how. How was he doing this? They knew how he was doing it. But they said, why? Why has God come this way? Why does it look this way? This isn't maybe what I was expecting. And when we come to this question of of why God's working this way, our next set of people, the apostles, ought to have some answers, right? They have been called by Jesus. They're following along with him. They have experienced in many ways their own personal renewals. Here he calls them together and he sends them out in power. And Luke's telling of this same thing. He includes that they were to go out and proclaim the kingdom of God. That's consistent with what we've seen in Mark also, isn't it? He says early in the chapter, Jesus says that the kingdom of God is at hand. Um, He tells his disciples a couple chapters ago that they need to move on to the next place. This is why I've come. Let's go to the next place. Jesus, having called his apostles together to prepare them, to train them, to teach them for some future work, is now calling them together um, for mobilization. They're to prepare themselves rightly. He tells them what to take and what not to take, that they might work expediently, that they might not be burdened down, that they might put their trust in him. But they still must be empowered by something greater, right? If they're going to go out and do kingdom work, they have to have the king's power given to them, working in them. And the importance of the, the miracles here are, as we've seen again in Mark, as we see throughout the Gospels, is that they are evidences of, uh, some people will say the evidences of the doctrine. You probably don't want to hear that part. They're evidences of the kingdom of God. They are evidences that what Jesus is saying and doing is real and is true. They're evidences of the authority of Jesus. And so the apostles go out and they call people to repent. They share the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah. They heal in his name by the power of the Holy Spirit. So here's these 12 guys. I mean, they've given up a lot. They've given up a lot already. Some of them had families. They had jobs, livings. Uh, They lived maybe in this town, not that town. And he's like dragging them all over the place, teaching and throwing them curveballs. They've given up a lot. They've seen his power. They've felt his power at work in their lives and in their communities. It's another group of people who ought to know Jesus, right? But then, but then look at what we see with the apostles throughout the gospel narratives. Time and again, they don't really get it. They don't quite 
fully understand, oh, you're the Messiah. Okay, oh, and you're God. Oh, you're going to die. They, don't, they, they have trouble understanding all of these steps that Jesus Christ is taking them through. They do not know Jesus as they should. We can look at the next person, Herod, very different sort of person from the apostles for sure. And really, we can just say he's a fool, right? He, uh, in reading this story and reading other stories and looking at history, I mean, this guy oozes stupid. He is constantly making just idiotic choices. You know, he knows, the text tells us, he knows John is righteous. He knows he shouldn't kill him. So he keeps him safe, right, locked away in prison, uh, postponing this execution that his wife Herodias would be glad to see happen at any moment. He respects John in some sense, we're told. But, you know, John is also kind of a nuisance. He's telling him, you know, what he ought not do, like take his brother's wife. Um, so having imprisoned this righteous nuisance, um, Herod imagines that he has somehow provided for himself a semblance of freedom and of peace. All right, he's away. Let me turn my attention to what I really want. His focus is the attention of others. This was the purpose of his drunken birthday party where his uh, stepdaughter uh, performs what's not a ballet uh, for, for the guests where they... Uh, and then he makes, them this, makes her this foolish promise to give up to half of his kingdom. What idiot does these things? And to show what? What is he, what is he after here? Is he off here to show his, his wealth, his generosity? No, he's, he's looking to endear himself to the fools that are surrounding him. His making of a, of a stupid vow um, and then following through with the murder of John the Baptist, which is a far worse action than if he had just reneged on his vow and done the right thing. These, these actions by him assure, indeed, that he is applauded by the fools around him, that he is lauded as the king of fools. He does not hear John the Baptist's call to repentance. He does not hear John offering to him an option which would truly lead to freedom and to peace. Rather, his passion for power, the attractiveness of approval override these things. And he looks to those people right around him. History tells us that some years later, Herod and Herodias would be banished by the emperor of Rome to Gaul, to the modern-day France, where they likely lived in isolation without the applause and the attention of others that they seemed to desire. And one other person that we should look at here is John the Baptist. This, the timeline is... Uh, not mixed up, but we're thrown back with this story of what happened to John after Jesus is, is preaching um, and, and teaching and healing. 
And we see in, in Matthew and Luke the story included where John is in prison, right? And he sends some of his followers to Jesus asking him, are you the, are you the one that we're supposed to be waiting for? Now, this is kind of ironic if you think about it. John ought to have known Jesus. John did know Jesus. John was one of the first to testify to Jesus as the Son of God when he, in his mother Elizabeth's womb, jumped as Mary, with Jesus in her womb, entered the room. It was understood that John was coming to herald the one who would usher in the kingdom of God. He, John the Baptist, baptized Jesus. Though they didn't grow up together as close cousins the way we might like to imagine, he knew of Jesus. He knew who Jesus was. But you can imagine sitting there in that prison cell, hearing about the great works of Jesus, but still being stuck in the prison cell, maybe John began to wonder, are you, are you, really, are you really the one? Are you really the Messiah that our people, that indeed the whole world have waited for for so long? And if you're out here healing people, if you're freeing people from demon possession, why aren't you freeing me from this prison cell? But maybe, maybe John said something like, but if you are the one, then I will die for your kingdom. What's your attention I hope is drawn to today is not trying to figure out which one of these people you are, who you most closely resemble in this list of people that we just looked at in the text. Because the truth is that at different times and in different seasons in your life, as in mine, we resemble all of these people. Even in this moment, and maybe not in this moment, but I can just about guarantee sometime this afternoon or sometime this week, you, like I, will be prone to saying, no, I'm not, I'm not like Herod. I mean, sin doesn't have that power over me. I know who Jesus is. I love Jesus. I'm following him. But even in this moment, also, there flows through your literal veins and your metaphorical veins, the virus of sin, the condition that we were born into and born with. The truth is, my friends, that we are a duplicitous people. We are, even at moments in front of the cross, even at moments when we are attempting to fix our eyes on Jesus, we are drawn away by so many other things. I mean, I'm not the only one who experiences this, I'm pretty sure. Like, literally in prayer, eyes closed, whatever, no one else around, no distractions around. And, man, I'm tired. I forgot to do that. When are my kids getting up? And on and on. The quick distractions away from the face of Jesus. How distracted we are, and this is not new to our age. It may be especially pronounced 
in our age, but it is not new. And therefore, we cry out with this prayer that you hear so much in the season of Lent. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. But let us, my brothers and sisters, not be distracted away from Jesus by smaller things. Let us be distracted to Jesus a thousand times from every lesser thing. You know, we often think of repentance as this 180-degree turnaround, right? And, and sometimes it is that. But a lot of times it's a 45-degree it's a turn, it's a 15, it's a, it's a 5-degree. Regular repentance is a, a regular looking back up, looking back up at Jesus over and over. He will buy by his power and not your own, shape you and mold you and make you to see him as he is, as you and I ought to see him. And you may have spent your whole life in the church, whether that's, I don't know, 15 or 40 or 80 years, uh, but you know that you know that you forget. You know you forget the promises that have been made to you. You know you disbelieve the words that have been spoken to you by God. You have been invited here today to once again see Jesus of Nazareth for who he really is. You may be here today knowing, feeling very certain that you know who Jesus is trusting to some degree that you are chasing after him, staying close to him as you can, that you love Jesus. And simultaneously, you know, like me, that you've been built guilty of, of building your own altars, that you have been guilty of forming your own worship, that you have been guilty of chasing after the wisdom of the world rather than the wisdom of God found in Jesus. And maybe that's you. Maybe you're not a church person, right? Those are the people I just described. Those are church people. Maybe you've journeyed far away from God. I've been there. I know how that feels. I know that even on this long, barren road where I seem like I'm in the middle of a desert, it's so hard to believe that maybe Jesus really is good. That maybe he's actually not way over there somewhere on this other road that I have to figure out how to get back to, maybe he's right here with me. That's hard to believe sometimes. Maybe you're new to all this completely. Maybe you just recently in the last year or month or week recognized that your life is in fact being patterned in such a way to draw you to God. Maybe you have... Uh, been even unaware of this question of who is this Jesus. Maybe you've longed to feel true forgiveness, to see your life covered in mercy, to get some glimpse of like, hey, maybe God really is good. It just hasn't worked out that way yet. Maybe you've gone further. Maybe you've cursed God. Maybe you uh, 
had a hard time getting to church today. That doesn't mean you cursed God. Maybe you know that in your heart you would question your own motives for being here. I'm here to whatever because it's what I do, because this person expects me to, because my spouse expects me to, whatever it may be. Wherever you're at right now, whichever one of those people you resemble today, you're here because God is welcoming you in to his kingdom. Again, maybe for the first time, maybe for the 500th time, you are welcomed to a place where Jesus reigns supremely kind, always, always there for you, gentle, and ready to crush anything that might come against you. My advice to you today, my encouragement to you, is to let Jesus answer for you the question of who he is. My encouragement to you is to let Jesus mess your life up. Because just as quickly as the waves of sorrow and pain brokenness wash over you just as quickly right behind those waves. In fact, pushing those waves in some way out is this unending river of mercy that God would extend to you forever. Jesus is that good. Just as surely as you see your efforts, your life's work, all your accomplishments, maybe your relationships, as not much better than ashes, just as quickly as you see that, will you see the beauty of Jesus? Will you see the worship of God as the only real work in your life? Jesus is that beautiful. And you can't, like me, you can't manufacture for yourself a spiritual experience. You uh, may have, have times, whatever, your quiet time or something else at church, where you sense the mercy of God in such a way that you may be moved to tears and you know it is not God because I can't, I can't make myself feel this thing. I can't make myself think this thing. You can't manufacture that. And the good news is you don't have to. Wherever you're here is that you want to take with you this here of spiritual experience. You don't have to, to figure out how to manufacture it because it's going with you because that here, that experience is the kingdom of God in you. My friends, the good news is that in that moment of mercy, you are being assured and your heart is being shaped to know who Jesus is and to usher you all the more, all the farther into the kingdom of God. Just then as the apostles were sent away, sent out, just as John sat in his prison cell, Jesus and his kingdom go with you wherever you are. Are you ready to go with him? Um, St. Augustine says that the best servant doesn't look to hear what he wants to hear. 
but looks to want to hear what he does hear. Do you hear Jesus today? I don't want to get too far ahead of things here, and I'll wrap up with this. But I was thinking, you know, next week Anthony mentioned is Holy Week. And the eschatological reality that we live in is Saturday. Yes, we know Jesus has, has risen. We live in a Saturday where we know that Sunday is coming. We know that the full realization of the kingdom of God is coming. And we're watching and we're waiting. But we must also be proclaiming. We must go out of here into every area of our lives proclaiming the coming kingdom where there will be no suffering, no sorrow, and no slavery. Jesus is the king and he is coming. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess that we don't often see you as you truly are. We can't come up with good answers as to who you are for ourselves, for others. Rather, we must rely on you to tell us who you are, to show us who you are. And we ask today that you would do that. I ask today that you would do that in the hearts and the minds of every person in this room, of every person volunteering uh, in the children's hall, of every child in our church, no matter their age or their ability to proclaim it. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would show yourself to all of us as you are. We ask that you would remind us when we feel heavy, when we feel burdened down, as if we must once again figure out a way to do it. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would just cause our eyes once more to glance up to you, trusting that by your power, that is all we need to look upon your face, Jesus. I pray for those who may be hearing me who have never known you that way, Jesus, whether they've been in church once or a thousand times. Lord, would you draw them ever nearer into your kingdom, into your great mercy and love. We thank you for the testimonies written in your word. We thank you for the testimonies that fill this room that we know you are faithful. We know and can trust that you will do this work as surely as you have brought your kingdom, as surely as you have risen, Lord Jesus. You will do this work in us today and every day. We thank you and we praise you. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, our Lord. Amen.